All right. As you're able, I'm going to ask if you could tie up and um, get to the amen. It is true. And uh, as you do so, I'm going to ask JC and Kat to come up to the front. So a long time ago in a faraway place, Kristen was able to, um, we were able to have that talk about worship and Taylor Swift. And so we're moving forward and uh, we're dealing uh, this morning in our series on worship. And I wanted to talk to people who've had maybe a worship experience that's a little bit outside of, quote unquote, the lighthouse bubble. Okay. And I want to say up front, this is not meant disrespect or look down on people who are at other churches or have different worship experiences. But I do think it's helpful to be able to see our worship experiences through the lens of the gospel and through the light of Christ. Okay. Um, you know, as we said this morning, we're all created for worship. That's why we crowd into Chase Center and that's why we're at Taylor Swift concerts and all of, we're, we're wired for worship. God has created us to be part of something greater than ourselves. Okay. And this is not to rip on Chase Center or Taylor Swift. Okay. We're, we're coming to God's word and seeing really the good news of what Christ has come and what he's done and to appreciate what he's done for us. And I think sometimes it does help us a little bit to be outside of our bubble a little bit. So we're not just Pharisees and scribes, people, okay, this is how we do worship and our worship's the best and this is the way it is. And I believe to some degree when Jesus shepherds the disciples, he's doing that as he says, look at the scribes and Pharisees on the one hand and look at the Gentiles on the other hand. He's saying, hey, I want you to consider and come back to see that there's really one way to God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so to that end, I wanted to ask uh, JC and Kat, you guys have had experiences outside of um, Lighthouse Bible Church and worship experiences, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your worship experiences growing up and first in the Philippines and maybe then even as you came and spent time here in America. And maybe you can just give us a big picture in a nutshell of what they were. And then I'll ask you afterwards, um, you know, what some of the influences were in that worship and where you see and how you see it now years after the fact. Okay. So for experience, um, yeah, but for first of all, like, um, I look at our my experience at the church in the Philippines. Um, I remember you know, how faithful and how a lot of the men that led our church um, truly loved the Lord. But then the theology of what church is for um, may not be truly biblical in a sense that the focus of worship is for evangelism. And so it's not uncommon for us to always have events like, okay, when I was in serving in the youth ministry, every month we have like a, a pizza party evangelism, an ice cream party evangelism. And then for the bigger um, adults, um, it's very common for us to um, be uh, driven by, um, you know, like events like, 
um, what was that? Zumba. Let's have Zumba before. We're, we're missing out here. Tyler okay. offered we're at Ringwood to do a Zumba class for her. I've met the singles ministry. Uh, ladies, okay. We're going to invite a speaker who's going to teach about decluttering. I mean, we all need to learn from that. But those were the kind of, I would say, um, strategies or things that we focused on in general. And it's not uncommon for us to have like a, a person having a clicker and counting how many people are attending the church services and the Bible studies. And then um, when you were serving a church, they like check in with you or like encourage you, like how many people are you meeting up with? Are you discipling or how many times do you meet with one another? But the focus is for growth, like the numbers. So that was one of my, uh, my memory of like the drivenness for uh, the church to keep growing. And it was pretty successful in terms of if you're looking at just wanting more numbers. Well, outside the United States, and it's certainly part of the United States, but outside of the United States, there is sort of a mega church phenomena a little bit, right? Where that tends to be, for evangelicals, that's kind of the standard. Yeah. And um, one last, like, uh, you know, Filipinos like singing. <laughs> so it's not me. Worship. Oh, yeah, and he's the one... 0.01%. That's why Jason's <laughs> at our church. <laughs> it's not uncommon for worship leaders to be like matching outfits and, you know, kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's, there's even like a dance ministry of some sort. So. Yeah. So our church, and I, I have to, you know, like, I agree, I agree with Kat. Um, uh, up to now, a lot of the leaders there are my friends. Uh, I love them. I respect them. Uh, they love God. Um, but as Kat mentioned, their theology is more informed by uh, the world's ways or the world's culture. And um, it's a lot of influence by seeker-sensitive movement, like uh, Bill Hybel's church in Willow Creek or Rick Warren's um, Saddleback Church. As a matter of fact, we did the Purpose Driven Life campaign in the Philippines, and it was successful from the world's eyes. A lot of, don't get me wrong, a lot of people get saved. Um, however, the, pro the, the challenge, now, now we're out of it. Um, we're, we do see that the Sunday service is catered towards unbelievers. It becomes evangelistic. And so what happens is that um, do people really gather for, yeah, people want to worship, of course, but sometimes the word gets diluted because it has to cater to the unbelievers rather than the church is a gathering of believers, right? Uh, to be under the authority of scripture. And so I think that's uh, what happens. But, but, you know, praise God that, you know, it's not to let like what Pastor Mark mentioned, but we're not here to uh, belittle them. We're so thankful for that church because it was in our formative years of um, our uh, as a young believer. We got I got to meet Kat in that church as well. So and we got married. It ain't all bad. So right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. So you all go out if you're singles and 
meet all those singles in the seeker sensitive churches and just bring them in here once they're saved. I'm saying that tongue in cheek for the uh, live stream and the audio. Maybe you guys can walk through, you sort of walk through a little bit some of the influences as well. You know, the Bill Hybels, the secret sensitive movement, the desire for evangelism, which is a good thing. We want people to hear the gospel. We want them to be saved. Um, now that you've been away from that for a long period of time, maybe you can give us a few thoughts as you look back with where the Lord has you now. Okay. And, and, you know, folks, as we walk through scripture, okay, number one, we need to be humble. Two, our Lord and Savior, when you look at the disciples, what he saved them out of, this is why he walks them through and says, don't be like the Pharisees and don't be like the Gentiles. He's cautioning them against basing their worship on their past experiences or what they see around them. Our eyes are to be focused on Christ. And so we have to understand people grow and mature. Does God save people in these churches? Yes, because it's God who saves them, not the work of men, right? It's the gospel that saves. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in and saves. It's not our particular pattern or method of worship. And we understand that God you know, as, as many people have said, he draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? And we look at the life of Abraham and we see in the life of Abraham, hey, there's a number that he's, he's a liar. When things get hard, he basically, the lies start coming out. Does God condone that? No. Do we model our life after that? David, you know, he's an adulterer. Do we, oh, well, he's an adulterer. It must be okay, right? Which different cults and different people do. They say that for polygamy. Just because it's part of our sanctification in areas we've failed does not mean God condones it or we're to imitate it, right? That's why he sent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the same time, as we grow, we want to be mindful, eyes on Christ. How is God graciously growing us so that we can humbly love others, right? So as you look at that with where you, where the Lord has brought you, looking back, maybe some perspective on the effect of that worship, which was very much focused on evangelism, very much focused on, I'm going to say, let's say worldly growth, right? Everybody wants growth, but that idea of bringing in large numbers, having the mega church, having the programs and the events, looking back on it now, maybe some of the effects of that long term. Yeah. Uh, for me, the result of that is I was so used to milk and not meat of the word um, at that time. So you can imagine the first few times I listened to like a John MacArthur sermon, I'm like, huh? Like my brain is about to bleed or so <laughs> not used to like really like study in depth. And I would be intimidated with words like doctrine, like doctrine of justification and all that. I'm like, no, the, the, for seminarians, something like that. And then, um, to fast forward, we're like exegesis sheet. <laughs> and we're like, you know. Um, Torture. <laughs> I um, really appreciate how, you know, um, the Lord has um, helped us grow in really understanding the, the that the word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it is really the lap unto our feet, and therefore, um, we we should have 
it it should be a big part of our worship god's word because that's how we know who god is so then i would see the before and after so one is yeah the the less you understand about god's word the less you understand about who god is and then the effect of that too is holiness because that's not the highlight we don't uh, we have a poor theology of sin and therefore we also have a poor understanding of how holy god is so we didn't have church discipline before we sin is not talked about so much in small groups or how we're doing it's more about results right it's how many people you share the gospel to how many it can be even tendency to be more legalistic than okay how who is god his character and then how is that affecting my walk versus like the ministries that we're involved in and the activities that we're part of and so um i think that would be like the the influence of like having that kind of um church culture or understanding is that yeah it affects my holiness affects my um understanding of who god is in this his word um and yeah um for me uh when i moved from the philippines to chicago that was my first i was 24 years old and um you know i went to willow creek as a matter of fact i you know i wasn't a member but i experienced the church worship experience of willow creek and i have to say it was from a human perspective it's really amazing because they have a you know like from their parking ministry to their children's like everything is like program driven their seats are so comfortable like you could like you know it's like wow and then the imax experience yeah it was uh i would i would say it was um they really make you feel comfortable and and it's not bad but uh what happens is that also the preaching is kind of um topical so instead of exegeting god's word is eisegesis and so now looking back, I do see the danger of misinterpreting God's word that it becomes more pragmatic. Uh, and sometimes the danger is that you're, the obedience to God's word, of course, obedience is preached, but it's more of like, what is it in it? What, what's in it for me? How can God bless me? How can my life be more comfortable? Again, it's driven by pragmatism to some extent as kind of um related to what you preached pastor mark a while ago that the preferences become more um i would say like elevated in a sense that's a danger because it becomes uh man-centered i would say uh and of course they they they, they worship christ they glorify god um but uh, i would say that um it's very um you know like not driven by by god's word so they're doing god's work in the world's ways by yeah like being driven by numbers or growth model or they they think they are successful when a person raises his hand by accepting christ as their lord and savior uh but sometimes the follow-up may not be there uh, because the discipleship uh, may not be emphasized that much. Or there are discipleship groups, but 
I remember in our church in the Philippines, it was driven by number. They We had this term called D12s because we have to follow Christ's model. That's, so, that's not M&M. Yeah, 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 yeah. So D12, so you have your 12 uh, men or 12 women, and then your 12, it's kind of like a pyramid scheme, actually. They, <laughs> so, they should have like, their own well, 12. They have their own 12, and so they were They're kind mature of, or not. And then they were kind of like driven, like, hey, this is one way to transform our country. And so anyway, uh, looking back, I do see a lot of our church in the Philippines being driven by the programs or what's the current popular uh, fad in the cultural Christianity. And so that's what they adapt. And so it's not, uh, it is not a surprise that when people don't spiritually mature because it's spiritual milk rather than the meat of God's word. It's, yeah. Oh, well said. And, you know, I, I would say, sadly, you know, the Philippines have gotten that from America. It's from us. I mean, that's that's really, it's American evangelicalism, which has sort of modeled this, patented it, and sold it, and sold it around the world. Well, listen, thank you for sharing um, with us. That's a blessing and a help just to live through your eyes and your experience. I'm going to highlight a couple things, but I'll let you guys have a seat. But can we have applause for Kat and JC? If you have your Bibles, could you have a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that active or passive verb will be nerds, right? This is the equipping time. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Active or passive? Passive. Now, it doesn't mean we don't participate, but this is the work that God does, right? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, that's a passage that you're well familiar with, right? Um, and, you know, what the Lord is talking about in Ephesians and he's talking about in this chapter in particular is the church and who the church is, right? We're a people who have been saved not by another church. We're a people who have been saved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by his blood. We've been chosen by God. We've been adopted into his family and Christ has paid the price and it's through his blood and through his blood alone that we've been brought near and we've made, been made one person in Christ and we are each living building blocks of that church. 
And so that's a definition of church that is different than what many of us, I, I would say, you know, Kat and JC, my growing up, I went to this Christian school, which was kind of like the one big Christian school in Canada back in the 70s. And it was almost similar to what you're describing. And except what they used for uh, a attraction seeker sensitive model was guest preachers. So they would have different celebrity guest preachers come in. And it was the preaching from the pulpit that was the draw. There was a big name always coming in, and that's what drew people in. And then people would drop their kids off in the children's ministry. And one of the terms that you brought up too, comfortable, right? How do we entice people to come? And as we come to God's Word, we see that Jesus has come to set us free from that. That's why he's talking about the Gentiles and the scribes and the Pharisees. He's calling us to a worship which is very much about our fellowship and our participation in God's glory, not trying to sort of bring God down and squeeze him into a program or a framework. And that's why the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth, independent of whether you have the resources or the ability to imitate Americans, right? Can I have my uh, next slide? Is that doable? You've seen this before, right? And, you know, it's one that I'm going to go back to over and over again, and I call it the worship frown, okay? And it, it's because it's it's how most church experiences are, most religions and most cults are, right? We spin our wheels, we work, we do things. My promise, my praise, my efforts, all of those different things that we do in order to try and have a better relationship with God. And ultimately, at some point in time, it collapses, right? There's, you know, if you want to, you can, you don't have to, but there's that whole Hillsong documentary. You walk through these things, and there are many of our spiritual experiences. You have a great retreat experience, and then you come down, and then you're by yourself, and it's like, and it's ultimately because my desires, my efforts, my praise, my worship is inadequate. It's inadequate for my home. It's inadequate for my family. It's inadequate for you. It's just an, at, at sooner or later, it's an empty experience because I'm not enough. And it's because God created us for worship. He created us that we would participate in something greater than ourselves. And that greater than ourselves is his love and his kingdom. Can I have my next slide? Is that doable? Okay. This is what I call the worship smile, right? But it, it's Ephesians 2. It's, it's what God has done in our life. That's the gospel. Christ came down, okay? He intervened in Mark Chen's life when Mark Chen was a wretched, offensive sinner to the Lord. He provided forgiveness. He preached peace to me, and he brought me into his family. And it's a work of the Father. It's a work of the Son. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Did I have a response? Yes. Did I participate? Yes, by faith, right? It's take God at his word right? And follow and obey. It's not a work, but it's a, it's a participation. And so worship is really meant to be a participation in God's glory, not man's glory, not the glory of a particular place, okay? And, and when we're within that context, when we look at this, it's about his family, it's about his praise, it's about his glory, and that's what makes it sweet because it is eternal and it is holy, and it's set apart for the Lord, and it is eternally good. God does not fail. That's really the testimony of the cross, right? He delivers, he fulfills his promises regardless of the cost. He steps in, and he takes care of his children, okay, through the good times and bad, and that's Genesis through Revelation. 
Can I have my next slide, please? Okay. Where Sinclair Ferguson is going, I believe, and and how many of you had a chance to read? I know it's been a crazy week. Everybody's had sick kids and so on and so forth. So I don't expect everybody to get it done. We're setting a direction. But how many of you had a chance to read chapter three? Okay, good. I was blown away, even though I've read it before and I read it again. One of the books that was precious to me, which had a major turning point for me when I was in medical school, was getting exposed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read it, and if you're able to get a copy, to read it. I mean, it, it is, I think, a seminal modern work, okay, for the modern church. Uh, you have to understand that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was coming out of a liberal background, okay? He grew up in Germany at a time where the church was deader than a doorknob. And I believe that the Lord saved him out of that. Some of the important influences was worshiping in black churches in Harlem because at the seminary he was at, Union, I believe it was, and also in many of the American churches, they were deader than a doornail. And he realized that they were not only spiritually dead, but they were theologically impoverished. They were just completely empty on every level. And, you know, the Lord did a mighty work in his life and, and saved him. And part of the fruit of that is the cost of discipleship. So as you go through his work, you're going to understand and appreciate some of the contacts where he's at. Some of his thinking might be a bit liberal, okay? And it's the similar things of what JC and Kat were talking about. I think we're seeing a man step by step by step becoming more conservative and being brought closer and closer to the gospel. And the fruit of that is the cost of discipleship. But as we come to what worship is, okay, in, in all of these churches, especially that are growth churches, the leader of worship is typically the leader of programs and the leader of praise, right? Is that not true? You hire a guy, he wears a fancy suit, he plays the piano really well, he's charismatic, he leads the singing. You do the same thing, honestly, in evangelical circles, we do the same things to grow churches. One of the keys, if you go through any of the church planting or any of the programs you, you go through, one of the things that's there, if you're willing to look for it, is you grow a church through children's ministries. You bring in an associate minister who's a charismatic person who relates well to children, and do you end up with a pedophile? Well, moving on from that, basically, but you look at how the criteria, the way it goes, is holiness and Jesus is nowhere to be found. So if you build a ministry on a man, that ministry will rise on that man and fall on that man. And that includes our celebrity pastors, okay? Because we weren't meant to worship John MacArthur or John Piper. We were meant to worship and created to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's not taking anything away from those men and their ministries, right? But I think the assurance of salvation that you have for all of you who have had different worship experiences is not building your worship on your past experiences. The same way we don't worship our relationship with God on our relationship with our fathers. What Jesus is teaching the disciples is, hey, you need to learn how to be a child of your new heavenly father who is holy and whose love is perfect. And he needs to become the standard by with which you measure all other fathers, not the other way around. Measuring God based on the experience of your father. It, it, it is radical. It turns the world upside down and it completely sets us free to walk in the love of the Lord. And so you see with worship, as we come to the church, who's the worship leader of the church? 
it's not a charismatic person leading children's camp. And it's not a man dressed in a great suit who plays the guitar really well or sings really well. Thank God for that, for JC and I, okay? And and Ted too. And it, it's 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 Kevin's the only one who who gets away. Um, and it's it's not and and it's and and this is listen, it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? He is the king of worship. He has bought our worship with his blood, and he is our leader, and we're to follow him, and our eyes are to be on him. And everybody who serves in a worship service is simply participating and serving under his leading, where our focus is to be on Christ and the cross and his resurrection, not our skills and talents. Does that mean we don't use what God has given? Of course we use it, and of course we give to the best of our ability. But this should give hope to every man here. Your leadership in the home as a husband and as a shepherd and your leadership of your children is not contingent first and foremost on your giftedness. It's contingent on Christ being present in your life, right? And if Christ is leading you and you are growing in Christ, your children are going to witness the gospel. And I've had friends whose parents got saved. We're, the reason they ended up in our Christian school is parents got saved. They were going to these really expensive private schools and the parents got saved. And suddenly it's like, we're moving, we're selling our home, we're moving closer to the church and our kids are going to a Christian. It was radical 180. And the kids were like, what's this? You know, now I got to go to this crappy Christian school when, right? But what's interesting for them is as they look in hindsight and see even though their parents were new believers and not every decision that their parents made were good and some of it or a lot of it may have been reactionary, nonetheless, because Christ was present and he was leading, even as immature Christians, there was still a visible witness of the gospel in that home, in that family, in the decisions and the things that they made and the blood of Christ covers our sins, right? God is a good father in and through that. And so you can be a new believer and still shepherd your home and still teach your kids and still go in a direction that's pleasing to the Lord, not because of you, but because Christ is present. And that should be the basis of every ministry and everything we do. It doesn't mean that we discard giftedness, right? It means that our natural giftedness is not what sets the pace, Christ is our worship leader, right? And where he is king, we are safe and we're in good hands. And as you look at what Sinclair Ferguson walks us through, which is essentially Ephesians 2 in the beginning of Matthew, you see from the very beginning what Jesus does is he preaches the gospel wide to the crowds. But when it comes to discipleship in the church, he draws very high fences, He lets people know right up front, look, there is a very significant cost to following me, and it's called the cross. And if you're not willing to give up everything, including family, okay, and as Sinclair Ferguson points out, he's not saying when he talks about us hating our family, he's showing the extent to which we must love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the strength of that priority. That if it's called to be a decision between my family or Christ, Christ is going to win. Husbands, you know when we lead, one of the biggest things is our fear of offending our wives. 
We want our wives to love us. We don't want to offend them. We want them to be happy. That's a good thing. But at the point that that starts to compete with what Christ is calling us to do and what he's clearly written in his word, we're struggling with an idolatry at that point in time, right? And the sweetness of what Christ does is he's present in our lives. He's clear with his word. And all he asks is that we trust him as king and Lord of our worship and that we follow him. And it is going to cost us everything. So there is a holiness to the church and a holiness to Christ and a holiness to worship that's set by Christ himself. That's what the Lord's Supper and baptism is for. It's like, hey, if you're not right with Christ or you haven't repented and he's not your king, you're not to participate in worship. You're not a part of the church. You're welcome to come and see, but you're not part. But there's the other aspect too of worship. It comes with a cost. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, shows us that cost right up front. He is so different than so many of the cults and so many of the churches where it's like, let's make you comfortable. We'll deal with the cost later. Jesus is, let me let you know what the cost is up front. It's going to cost you everything because everything in this world is what holds you away from a right relationship with a new father and a new family, and a new life. And I'm going to take you there step by step by step by step. And the sweet thing is, is as we come to Christ, he doesn't give us more than we can handle. Our father is a gentle father. At the same time, he does make very, very clear expectations and demands so that we know exactly where he stands. And so we have to think sometimes in worship, in serving the Lord, It is hard sometimes. There are periods of time in God's family where it is difficult. It's not exciting. We bear one another's burdens. Why? Because that's what our Lord and Savior did so that we could be part of his worship, right? That's what he did so that we can be part of his family. And what Jesus is doing is he's bringing us to the cross to show us Ephesians 2 that what makes this worship so special is him and what he has done for us and the family that he's brought us into, which is the family of the Lord. It means discipleship. So often discipleship of what gets sold and discipleship are the distinctives of a church. That is simply branding. That is what American churches do. We brand our church so people know what we stand for, so people, I'm coming to this church for this. I'm coming for, to this church for expository preaching. I'm coming to this church for its great children's ministry. I'm coming to this church because it does evangelism really well. You go shopping, right? And you find the church or the college that works well for you, and discipleship is being indoctrinated in the distinctives of how we do church. As you read through chapter three of Devoted to God's Church, you see that's not what Jesus is doing. He gives you the gift of new life, and then he shows you how to live it. And the distinctives that he is giving you are the distinctives of the cross and the distinctives of the family of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And a lifetime of worship is the sweetness and the fellowship that even when it is hard, even when it is difficult, even when it is uncomfortable. And worship, brothers and sisters, is meant to be uncomfortable. 
Just look at the disciples. Was their life comfortable all the time? Did they always have, they did go to weddings. They did go to parties, right? Jesus was not a killjoy, but you know, was it all about comfortable seats? When it's the comfortable seats that we're coming for, when the comfortable seats are gone, we get discontent and we leave. And what Jesus is shepherding you as disciples is that you would be like him. That when they're suffering, you don't leave your family. That when it's hard, you can still love. When people treat you unkindly, you can overcome evil with good. Why? Not because you're better, but because you're a child of God and that's how he loves. And the end of worship, brothers and sisters, is when Christ returns and we get the opportunity to be with him face to face and sin is removed. And we enjoy an active life of serving in the fellowship and love and praise, not of us, but of Christ. And until that time, what worship is, in part, it's our training ground where Christ is giving us a taste of heaven, but also a preparation and a sanctification, excuse me, where he's preparing us for that eternal glory of that communion and fellowship with him where we will for eternity serve him. Okay, so hopefully this gives you an idea of where we're going. Okay, our aim is that we would walk with Christ and he would be our worship leader. Can I have my final slide? And I have to tie up because you all need to get your kids and so do I. Okay, in a month's time, we're going to have an Advent celebration. And I want to draw a connection here. The Advent celebration for our church is meant to be discipleship. It's an opportunity for us to keep our eyes on Christ. We're not doing this to bring as many people in. The way the world does it is the opposite of Christ. The way the world does it is we bring as many people in as possible. They see the movie, they applaud afterwards, and then they become part of the process, right? Jesus is the other way around. He goes out, he preaches the gospel. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as Matthew leaves his tax collecting booth and as people leave their nets, he brings them in and makes them disciples and makes them part of his church. So our Advent celebration is meant for the people of God. It is meant to shepherd our hearts so that we have our eyes focused on who Jesus is and what the incarnation is about. To stop and be still and know that he is God and to be blown away by the reality that Christ, who is the Son of God, became a man and entered into our world so that he could save us from our sins. The second aspect that we do in Advent celebration is to encourage and edify so that we have an opportunity to learn how to serve. The final aspect is so that we are faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And so, yes, we do invite family and friends and others to come, not saying that they're a part of the church, but to have the opportunity to proclaim this is what the church is so that we can very clearly say it's about Christ, it's not about us. Okay, I want to put that out there together so that we as a church can be praying for this. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, in years past, we've always given out Advent devotionals. I'm going to ask over this next month that you dig those out wherever they are in your bookshelf and start to go through that as part of your devotions maybe even just a lesson on a weekly basis as we lead up so that our eyes are focused on Christ. 
And then as we come to Advent, each of the different ministries, Logos, Harvest, and Hospitality, Cornerstone, each one is going to have a different opportunity to participate. There will be an hour where it's corporate worship and the choir is going to be there, okay? But then after that, we're going to have an hour in between, which is going to focus on children and church activities and also um, missions. And our focus is this is an opportunity for us to fellowship and share the gospel. And so there's going to be an opportunity for you to participate in the Harvest and Hospitality team of how can we draw connections between what the gospel is about and who we are and what we're doing. And then finally, we'll have a chance for a meal together at the end to come together and really celebrate Christ's presence in us, that you all are living testimonies of the incarnation of Christ, that he's risen and he's come, and the testimony and the proof is, is us, and to celebrate his love. And finally, I just want to ask that you would be praying for this time. Consider how the Lord is calling you to participate. There's an opportunity for every person but also consider during this time how we can serve and minister to one another to do what? Point one another to lead to the love of Christ, right? And my hope and aim for this is that for the rest of the year, as you go to your own Christmas events, as you interact with family, our aim is that your hearts would be full, that you would be equipped, that your eyes and your heart will be so filled with the love of Christ that as you get together with family members and coworkers and people who are unbelievers, that what they would see in you is not our church, but that they would see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm going to close our time in prayer. Thanks for joining us for this time, and uh, please be in prayer for our Advent service. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of Worship. And that the salvation that we have is not based on a program or a ministry, but it rests eternally secure in your work on the cross. Lord Jesus, we know that you have put before us hard commands. You put before us to count the cost of the cross. And yet, Lord Jesus, we also know that you do not give any command that you also don't provide for. And the provision for walking with you comes from the presence of your spirit and your word. Lord Jesus, we pray over the next month as the holiday season comes, Thanksgiving comes, we're going to be interacting with family members, interacting with coworkers. It can be a challenging and lonely season. It can be a busy, busy season. Lord Jesus, would you enable us and would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and the gift that we have of being part of the family of God? And would you help us, Lord Jesus, to help one another, that we would love one another and pray for one another, and that we would serve one another simply by being an encouragement and pointing one another to the goodness of the gospel and to help one another to keep our eyes fixed in you, especially, Lord, for families when kids are sick, in dealing with difficult family members, in dealing with difficult coworkers, and all the challenges that come with this season. Lord, would you help us by faith not only to consider our own struggles, but to consider the struggles of others and come alongside and encourage one another by faith, faith that believes that the real prize and the real remedy, Lord Jesus, is you. Thank you for these things, Lord Jesus. And and Lord, for our children, we pray for their salvation. These kids who are being ministered to at this time, 
We have no idea for some where they're at, but you have given them to us as this privilege and opportunity. So for the children's ministry and for Advent and for Cornerstone, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would do the work that we cannot do, that you would save these children and give them, Lord, an awareness, a love, and a knowledge, and a burning, Lord Jesus, to know you for who you are, a Savior and a King who is good and gracious and holy and perfect, the one we so desperately need. In your name we pray. Amen.